welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. A lot of you have requested that we talk to one of the onboard reporters, and indeed there are many amazing stories that take place behind the lens that seldom get told. So we did a little digging, and who better to talk to than Rick Tomlinson. He was the first OBR before even the race knew that it needed such a role. I'm not going to spoil any of the stories in this introduction, but suffice to say that he was doing things 20 years before we even realised that it was possible. In recent years, us fans of the Ocean Race have been able to enjoy news and stories up to the minute while the boats are racing. Live video feeds and interviews bringing the drama closer than ever. But if you talk to the race's legendary sailors, they will talk about being hooked, being convinced to dream about being competitors from those very first early editions, long before the technology that we enjoy now even existed. One of the reasons for that is people like Rick Tomlinson. He was an onboard reporter before the name even existed and before any of the technology allowed us to do what we do today. He developed a style of covering the race that has since become commonplace. Uh, but it's important to point out, Rick, that while you are known, or at least your photography is very well known, you were actually a competitor in the race as well. And, and that's where you first joined the race as a sailor. How did that moment come about? Yeah, well, I was um, working as a boat builder. My, my sort of total ambition at school was to do the Whitbread race. That's all I really wanted to do. And so I channeled my efforts down into that to, to follow that dream. I lived in the Isle of Man at the time and I was sailing and racing with a guy called Nick Kegg who had prime runs called Three Legs of Man. We ended up racing against a boat called Colt Cars, which had been uh, um, with Jeff Holgrave, and we came down to the Solent to race against them. And they were starting a project to build an 80-foot IOR maxi for the Whitbread race. I sort of hooked up on that idea and got a job with the build team, basically. And I moved down to Plymouth, joined, joined the team as a boat builder, which is slight exaggeration, really. I was more sweeping the floor and making the vacuum bags. but kind of got me into the into the right arena and from there I just hung in with that boat until eventually Skip Novak said do you want a place on the boat and and this is um uh, yeah so this is 8586 this is drum and I mean this is quite a legendary boat for a lot of reasons um I mean there's so many little things about that race when I was looking into the it, it, into the history of it you've got Simon Le Bond you've got all that kind of stuff which we'll come to in a minute but the key thing that you're known for is some of the most iconic photographs in the races past so you're stepping on board this boat as a as a racer you've worked your way up from sweeping floors which is a very honorable profession uh, you've now got on board as a sailor you had a camera in your backpack? I mean, where did where did that little bit come from? It, it came out almost by default, really. Um, because of Simon and Ron's involvement, they wanted somebody to take some pictures on board. And I was probably the last person to say no. That's kind of, kind of how it happened. I was a keen amateur <laughs> photographer and uh, I had some ideas and I was interested in photography, but it, it almost came about because no one else wanted to do it. And important to point out, you know, Simon, Simon Le Bond is the, you know, this is Duran Duran. This is, I mean, almost a sort of a, a first celebrity 
taking part in the race. That must have been an incredible media circus at that time, sailing under the spotlight in a way that it hadn't been before. Yeah, it certainly was. And because of Simon's involvement, there was a huge media interest. And there was also a, a massive amount of, of sort of fans following the boat and everywhere we went. So it was quite a circus at times and um, quite, quite funny. But kind of when you're involved in these things and you're in the bubble, you sort of take it for granted. You don't, you don't think it's out of the ordinary until you kind of look back and realise that actually it was pretty extraordinary. And... I mean, from you as a boat builder stepping on board those boats, the gulf now between amateur and pro sailor, I think, is is enormous. Did you feel then that you had the skills to go and do that race, to go down there? Or was that, you know, that first trip through a storm a bit of an eye opener? No, I, I think I I was fairly reasonably experienced at that stage. I'd done a few transatlantics. I've been racing multi-holes uh, as they were at the time. Um, I wasn't in the same league as the sort of the maxi circuit guys. And I sort of kept, kept my head down and learned as quickly as I possibly could. But um, from a seamanship point of view and, and being able to clip sails on and pull them up and down, it wasn't that difficult. I think one of the biggest differences is, is the number of people that were involved. You know, on drum, on the normal leg, we'd be 18 people on board. And going around the cans, we could be as many as 26. I think on the fast net race, we were nearly 30. That compared to the sort of modern teams now, where it's gradually been getting lesser and less. And now down to, with the mockers, it's probably going to be probably six, six, five or six sailors. And, that's quite a big difference. You can hide amongst a crowd in, in a team of 18. You talk about hiding and, you know, being a little extra crew member. And that reminds me of something I, I meant to ask you. I was watching an old interview with um, Magnus Olsen, who was on board drum all the way back in the day. And he was talking about a situation. And, and tell me if this is wrong if I've got this misunderstood, but he was talking about a situation where the crew, you know, yourself, you know, you guys weren't too confident about the boat going into the Southern Ocean, being a new build. Would it do, you know, would it hold up? And so there was a phone call made to the boat designer to say, well, look, if you're confident that your boat can go into the Southern Ocean, you should come with us. Is that is that true? <laughs> yeah, it is true. Yes, yeah. And we, we'd obviously had a, a pretty tricky situation in the fast net race in that year where the keel had actually broken off and the boat inverted, we were all rescued, including Simon the Bomb. So it was a huge media storm around there. The boat was then repaired and, and we managed to get the new rig, new sails and everything in, in place. But then on the way to Cape Town, we had some other structural issues. Um, so they were then sorted out in Cape Town. Um, but by then, you know, some of the guys possibly including myself, had kind of lost a bit of confidence in the boat. And you kind of think, well, well, well hang on, we're just kicking the can further further on. Is there going to be some other issue? So I do believe that that call was made to Ron Holland. And in reply, he sent his brother down to sail with us. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Holland, who was a very experienced maxi sailor. Um, right, oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Phil, Phil joined us for the next leg and everything worked out fine. Perfect. Bit, bit, bit of a gamble. It does show some uh, some brotherly uh, trust there, or or maybe not. I mean, you can you can interpret that story in, in different ways. But 
so so you're on board the boat you 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 are contributing to speed but the way that i hear the story you start getting more and more interested at using the camera and you know being off watch maybe or whatever you start going actually i'm gonna i'm gonna start documenting these these moments you know more and more of your time gets spent behind the lens well i mean it was a personal interest but also it was a bit out of boredom sometimes you know when you're straight lining uh, two sail reaching three sail reaching there isn't a lot for nine people on deck to do um so i would come up on deck during my off watch and i would start taking pictures and then started experimenting with taking pictures at night and using flashes and things like that but it was all shot on film so you sort of didn't get that instant feedback as to what the pictures look like you'd have to wait three weeks before you get to the next port and then send them to a processing lab and then start looking through slides so it was kind of quite a different process you, i would go on deck maybe just before the watch started take a few pictures and then put the camera down but and you just forget about it until you took the film out of the camera and, and took it to the lab did you have anything i mean waterproof cases i mean even waterproof cameras now are very commonplace what were you doing to protect your equipment back then uh i would use a, a sort of plastic bag and some duct tape basically <laughs> just tape it around the lens and then cut the lens hole through it um there wasn't much you could do and and you know, unlike the digital you can just put a large card in and you can shoot a thousand or two thousand three thousand pictures every 36 shots on these cameras you had to open up the back and put a new film in so it was, it was quite a different thing to, to have to cope with that At, i mean you, you i know you from working in the office in alicante during the last edition which we'll get to in a minute but i remember seeing you know when, when you were monitoring the feeds and all the rest of it i mean there were thousands of photos coming in every day from the obrs in the last edition how many because it's such a manual process of every single time I click that button, I'm going to have to take it in, I'm going to have to change things. There's such a lot of um, work involved with it. How many pictures would you be taking a day? Was it you know, one a watch? Uh, no. I mean, some days you perhaps wouldn't take any. And um, other times you'd, you'd take a whole film. But that would only be 36. But then you'd have to sort of go down below and change the film. Or if you're at the top of the mast, uh, change film at the top of the mast and change film at the end of the spinnaker pole and it's quite <laughs> risky <laughs> you don't want to drop the film and you don't want to get any water into the back of the camera when you're doing it so um you have to be careful and that, but it was uh, there was nobody had the expectation of anything great coming back from it so that's quite a different thing uh, there isn't that massive daily expectation in, in alicante for fantastic pictures every day if i got to the end of a leg with 20 great pictures that, well, that was seen as a success what, what was the reception for that because um like you say now we take it for granted what was it like being able to step off the boat and say i think we've got some good stuff here that you know you might not have seen before well nobody was really expecting anything and nobody was even asking and it was uh, kind of up to me and, and there was a couple of journalists one called tim jeffrey and another called david glenn from yachting world that would have they would be in each port and and so the first time i met them 
was in Cape Town and I, and I said, oh, I might have some pictures, but do you want to have a look sort of thing? And, um, they went, oh yeah, they're quite good, and uh, took them away to the magazine. And other than that, I was literally making up a little parcel of slides and sending them back by post to Seahorse magazine or Boat International or Yachting World. And then two months later, the Rodian article would come out. So that there, there was really none of this instant need for material and, and no great expectations. And obviously you caught the bug for it. Obviously something about all that effort was rewarding because if we skip to the um, next edition, which was a card in 8990, this is when you started getting a little bit, shall we say, truly innovative about getting an angle or a view that maybe people hadn't seen before. I mean, what sort of crazy stuff were you trying there? Well, and that was four years later. There was a kind of a roll-on from the drum crew that became the card crew. And, that, and that's often the case with, with all these projects. And you can look back at all the great sailors and there's a red thread that goes through their careers of sailing with the same type of people or the same number, same people over and over again. And so from drum became the card. Magnus Olsen was on board again. Uh, Roger Nielsen was there, Gunnar Krantz. Um, so there was... Uh, and one, I think one of the reasons they wanted me on board now is because it, it was sponsored and they needed some commercial return. And, and so I started thinking, you know, what sort of shots, what, what can I do that hasn't really been done? And so the top of the mast, the end of the spinnaker pole had all been done before. So I tried to use a kite and, and fly the camera away from the boat. This is always one of the things about photography is you always want to be on the other side. So if you're on the boat, you want to be off the boat. And if you're off the boat, you want to be on the boat. <laughs> so I kind of worked out a, a flying a kite system and being able to sort of fly a, a you know, a dragon kite and then attach a camera to it and, and let the kite go up high and using a very simple, like a radio controlled model remote plane, be able to fire the shutter by having a little sort of servo that would actually literally just press on the shutter speed when I pressed the thing. <laughs> it was a bit experimental and I wouldn't say it was particularly successful, but it got a couple <laughs> of shots. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm guessing, would you have to sort of choose the focal length or set it for a, for a you know, a, a good depth of field and then just sort of send it up? Because yeah, you can click the shutter remotely by cobbling something together as you described, but focusing? No, you couldn't focus, and you know it was a, put a fixed lens on it, a standard lens, and focused it at infinity. Uh, right. And, and you wouldn't know how many shots you'd taken either. It would just be, it was completely blind and, and <laughs> slightly crazy. But uh, it, it, it's it's more about the effort rather than the result, I think. But but interesting that you were trying and i'm sure other people were, were thinking along the similar lines you know trying to go right well what can we do that that's different the other thing i think that's that really stood out from what you just said before was one of the reasons why you were on that boat was they wanted a commercial return and suddenly it was a case of actually if we get good media from the boats that's one way of doing that and i'm guessing um I'm guessing that's just kind of gone more and more and more now that that 
at that time, being somebody who could go, I could get you a shot that nobody else sees and it's going to get in a magazine because it's an unusual photograph that looks really cool. That must have been quite a good weapon to get on quite a few good projects. I suppose it was, but we didn't know it was a weapon at the time. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't used that way, really. Um, it was sort of, the commercial side of the race was only just developing. Mm. Most of the entries were, were private or, or sponsored by a company that would put their name on the side would have no media, no activation about the program about the race. And the race only went to four places or in, in the, with the card, five different places. And there kind of wasn't that import circus um, that, that, that there is today. We'd go into a boatyard in the port, we'd do our refits, we wouldn't have a short team, we'd, we'd do all the work ourselves. We might have a container that, that would go around with us, perhaps a uh, I think in the first container on drum, there was actually a telex machine. It's kind of that old technology. So com compared to the sort of the traveling circus that the race is now, with massive media activations in every port, that just wasn't on our radar at all. Uh, a very different experience and interesting when you look through the roll call of some of the sailors from from those early years, those 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 Whitbread years. I'm sure there's an incredible um, bond there, but it's interesting that so many of those names keep coming up, not least on board your boat. Uh, Johan, the co-president of the ocean race, was there, you know, sailing with you while you were dangling lenses from, from kites and all the rest of it. I mean, it's, it must have been quite a moment to be involved in the race's past. Well, it was, it was as much an adventure back in those days. I mean, that, that the whole thing of sailing around the world hadn't been done that much. And, and so um, the whole adventure of going offshore, you, you wouldn't really have any contact. I mean, not like the daily call-ins that you get today. We'd have an SSB radio and one boat would be the duty boat each day. And all the boats would call into that boat. And then that one boat would report the positions back to, to the race headquarters. So and this is before the internet, this is before email it was literally you know two pieces of string and a couple of yogurt cans that were trying using the technology <laughs> to, to actually get the to get the information back to shore and we'd arrived back in port having not had any news for 28 days or 35 days uh, apart from maybe the bbc you know world service so, so you were very much cut off but as you say, that those people that were involved, of, of many of them stay involved. They do a number of different races and perhaps go into the management side of things or the, or the project management and um, coaching side of things. And yes, Johan was on the boat then. Um, Richard Bridges was on another boat. Um, Magnus again was, was there. Um, Gurkrantz was back in for a couple more races after that. So you know, kind of once you once you get the bug, it's pretty hard to shift it. Let's. Um, I just want to pick up on something that you talked about when you said, you know, no internet, none of that sort of technology. And I want to I want to ask you about the ninety three ninety four race. Um, I cannot for the life of me pronounce the name of the boat that you were on. So I'll let you mention that in just a minute. But the reason that I wanted to mention it is because that seemed to be the pin in the timeline in terms of 
a step up in technology where we've got we've now got a data link uh, with the outside world from the boats yeah that's correct uh, this this uh, race i was involved with again was a swedish boat uh, called interim justitia and um they had the first satellite communications on board the boat so now there was a channel to be able to send things back it was primarily aimed at, at voice um and of uh, moving pictures of, of video, digitized video. But I wanted, to, of course, to push the envelope so it could do still pictures. But we're still before digital cameras. So cameras were still on, still using film. So uh, I, I actually started processing the film on board the boat using chemistry, taking a negative out, of, taking a film out of the back of the camera, putting it into a developing tank, putting in chemicals and you know, agitating the chemicals and then washing it and fixing it and then drying it. Hang on, hang on, sorry, sorry. So you've got something cobbled together that's that's a dark room on board the boat. Where where are you where are you doing this on board the boat? Well, yeah, I mean, to, to actually just get, get the film out of the camera and into the into the developing tank is the only time you actually need it to be dark. Right. I, I'd use a bin bag, a black bin bag. Those plastic bags, wonderful, aren't they? <laughs> uh, so yeah, I take the film out of the out of the back of the camera in in a, in a bin liner and put it into the developing tank, and from then on you could be in daylight. But I mean, there isn't much room in the sixty footer, so I actually took over the galley for for about an hour and got my chemistry set out. And I mean, there's a lot of ammonia involved in this, and sort of a stink in the inside the boat of ammonia and Laurie Smith comes down and goes, what the hell are you doing, Rick? <laughs> oh, just processing a film, Laurie. And he just shook his head and just goes to the back of the boat. <laughs> yeah, de developer developer fluid is 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 definitely one of those smells that I think some people like and some people don't. Yeah, so, you can still smell it even today. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so... So then we would be able to use a scanner. So, right. Nikon had brought out some portable scanners at this stage, so um, called a Nikon Cool Scan, and we had early Apple Macs, and we were able to sort of connect the two together and actually scan negative, which you could then invert and become a positive, so you could actually see an image. But but this wasn't. I mean, what kind of scanner are we talking here? Are we talking, you know, a flip the lid, put it in scanner, one of those early roller ones? No, it was a dedicated film scanner, so it was about the size of a shoebox with a with a little uh, um, opening on the front that would actually take a negative carrier or a slide that you could literally put in. Yeah, and it would scan it. It would take about twelve minutes to scan one picture, um, and then using the, using the Mac, you could then hook that up to the satellite system, and then using complicated modems, actually send a picture back from the Southern Ocean. The, the thing that I really want to do now, and I'll do this after this interview, is I'm going to go and search for an image of an Apple Mac computer in 93, because I want to know how big, small we're talking, because none of this operation <laughs> sounds easy. I mean, I mean, we, we talk about, you know, you being quite innovative and, and smart. I mean, this is taking on an awful lot of work to get that picture out to people while the race is happening. Yeah, it was a lot of work, but I, mean, I had a bit of help on board, in particular uh, the navigator on board, Marcel Van Triest, um, who 
was very well known in the red and Volvo circles. He was a bit of a collaborator with me and helping me with the technology and, and also spending the time to watch the scanner slowly creep across this picture. And, and then the sort of two or three hours it could take to actually send the picture. And, and Marcel was fantastic to help me do that. Well, at least I could go and get some sleep in my off watch. I, I'm, I'm just I'm just becoming aware now of the gulf in terms of how quickly things can happen now, the quality, the size and all the rest of it. And you going click. Right. What I'm now going to have to take that and send it to the other side of the world. Surely at this point, people are patting you on the back and saying, wow, the effort that you're putting into this is really sort of paying off. You know, did you was it still please tell me you were getting something <laughs> to be honest it, there, there wasn't a lot of feedback because there wasn't the commercial use for it even though we got it back there there wasn't the internet to put it out on um you know it would just it would go to the daily newspapers or something like that um, yeah and that that was it really because there wasn't the sort of the the platforms out there like twitter or facebook or the internet to actually do anything with it when you when it got there so it was purely my own sort of persistence and, and desire to try to do this that was pushing it. And then it gets superseded so quickly by technology. <laughs> I, I, think that is, I think that is the very definition of being ahead of your time. Um, so then with the next campaign, this is EF Language, EF Education. And this is you taking a kind of um, a, a much more of a, I'm coming in as a photographer. I'm coming in to cover the race. Um, you know, you, in my understanding of that one, you weren't really lining up to do the to do the whole lap. No, that's right. I, I kind of was was becoming more and more involved with the photography side of things, and I wasn't sailing in between that much during during the in between races that go on between the Whitbread races. So. I got a call actually from National Geographic to ask if I'd be interested in, in being on board the boats to do an article about the Whitbread race in National Geographic. And I was also talking to uh, you and Celine and Richard Bridges at the same time with, with the program. They were the project managers for EF and with a male, male boat and a female boat. Um, so the two things sort of came together and it was a great, um, what do you call it, a, a great um, relationship between a, a young education company and National Geographic because it was a perfect match. And so then, then, then they sort of appointed me to say, okay, you're going to sail on. I actually did two legs, one on the girls' boat and one on Paul Kayard's boat. Um, but I had to do a watch because there was no OBR position. I had to be a sailor uh, and part of the crew, which, which I really enjoyed. Um, but also came the responsibility of knowing I've got to produce the goods for National Geographic when I probably started 12 years earlier trying to get a picture in Seahorse. I mean, that's, I'm not a photographer, but I'm guessing National Geographic is a pretty big publication to be printed in. Surely at that moment you think this hard work has, has paid off here. You know, I'm, I'm, my my art is being sort of requested by some pretty high up well-to-do people 
Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, at that time and still today, I think uh, National Geographic is the ultimate magazine to be published in. So it was a great honour to to actually have that uh, have that call, and um, it has a circulation of ten million. So it, it's pretty big compared to the average sailing magazine. So it, you know, it was a good match for the sponsors. It, it was a fantastic uh, opportunity for me. Uh, and, and good for the race so it was a, a win-win all round and what what did it feel like when you did sort of take a step back from being on board the boats as a sailor and and and, and as a sort of obr for want of a better term that you know, didn't exist back then you take a step back and we start seeing things like helicopters and all of a sudden you can get that shot that you've been sweating blood to try and get by rigging up all sorts of things with kites. Suddenly you can get that from a helicopter. I mean, that must have felt like you had the keys to the toy box. Um, <clears throat> I think the, the biggest difference, I think, really, helicopters have a very limited range. That, you know, going more than 100 miles offshore in a helicopter is not really that, that easy. So you know, some of the stuff we did around Cape Horn and things like that when the boats yeah, were in range um, were, were fantastic opportunities. The, the biggest difference now is the drones. You know, what I was trying to do with, with a kite and a, attached to a piece of string, a drone can do, you know, in fact, you never even heard of the name drone differently back then. Never even dreamed that it would be possible. But sort of everything that I've been trying to do is always the technology is caught up from, from not having to process a film on board because you then have digital cameras to having cards that can take thousands of pictures where you don't have to change film to suddenly being able to have a, an eye in the sky that it can follow you around. It's just fantastic. And, and the footage that the OBRs brought back from the last race was just absolutely phenomenal. Do, do, you, do you have any sympathy um, when you might hear any of the OBRs, oh, you know, I got this, oh, I couldn't get the battery run out. Are you there thinking, God, you know, I had this thing up on a bit of string, you know, 100 feet up in the air. <laughs> uh, sometimes you smile a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, I mean, let, let's talk a little bit about the, um, you know, the helicopter. The, the reason being that, that I remember, like anybody who, who has, you know, been introduced to the race, I can say when that first moment was that I remember thinking, Wow, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty special. And for me, it was uh, Asa Abloy, one of the sixties, flying what appeared to be absolutely dead horizontal, just firing out of a wave with spray coming around, and the logos on that boat with the keys. And it just it just was an image that I just thought, I don't know what that is. I don't know what the race is, but that looks amazing. I had no idea who you were and I mean I'll put my hand up even when I first met you I still did I didn't know that you were the guy behind all these photographs that I've seen throughout my, my entire sailing life and have made me really love the sport what's it like to be somebody who is you are not known your art is really well known do you ever want to sort of you know get a you know stand in front of it occasionally uh, no, <laughs> no, that, that's not me. <laughs> and I think that's probably the same for most photographers. I, I a, lot, a lot of photographers are quite shy people. And they often hide behind the camera when you have the 
the, the, the image in your mind that you want to take or you have the technology to do it or the artistic eye to do it. But it's, I'd never put myself in front of the camera voluntarily to uh, go, yeah, look, look what I did, look what I did. That's kind of not, not the way I am at all. I'm very happy for the picture to speak for itself. I'm guessing in all those years with the early Whitbreads and everything, there are very few photographs of you, because as you say, you're the one pointing the camera at other people. Do those sailors um, ever thank you for being the person who was prepared to get the camera out when the weather wasn't good and go through all that drama to get those shots that have now made them famous? I, I don't think I could say I've never made anybody famous, but uh, yeah, then I mean, there's a nice... Uh, there's a community around the race, that, that there's the camaraderie of, uh, of the, the, the guys that uh, um, have done the race many times and, and mutual respect works both ways, doesn't it? And people like Bowie Beeking or um, Brad, Brad Jackson and a few other guys, you know, but yeah, but we know you did that for us, Rick. We know. You don't need to say it very loud. <laughs> and um let, let's move to the last edition because this this is where i met you we were both working in alicante in in race headquarters and I, I, you know it was a different role for you you know ha, um you're sort of behind the scenes i mean how would you describe what you had to do um through the race while the boats were at sea well i mean i was basically one of the race control watch watch team so um I was running a shift, we're doing sort of 12 hours on, 12 hours off. No, not 12, eight hours on, eight hours off in, in race control. Um, working with a team of really great three other guys, um, monitoring the boats. And because of my background, I took a special interest in what the OBRs were doing and communicated with them quite a lot. It's a pretty lonely job being an OBR on a boat. So um, I sort of made sure that, that there was communication going back and forth and feedback about the imagery or just general support but, and the main reason we're there is the safety of the boats and um, the general day-to-day -day routines uh, of position reporting and, and the communications that go back and forth so it, it, was, it was a really interesting job I really enjoyed doing it uh, it was made special by Sam and uh, <laughs> Peter <laughs> And the other guys that, that were there, and yourself included in that, it was it was a, a really good experience of, of being involved in the race in a completely different way. I think the, the the bit where it changed for me was when I can't remember who it was, but somebody found the auxiliary socket to make the speakers in race control play music, and from there on, two a.m. in the morning suddenly became a lot more entertaining. But we'll leave that one aside. When you were talking to the OBRs out on the water. Um, what did you think about about the demands that are on them now? Because, like you say, you know, when you're t when you were taking photographs back in the day, somebody looks at this great. If they don't, okay, it's your personal enjoyment. There is a lot of demand for them to get that perfect shot and get it now. I I think a great deal of sympathy for the OBRs with with the demands that are put on them to produce good material every day that's really hard because a lot of stuff doesn't happen all the time you know if the boat's just straight lining two sail three sail reaching there isn't a lot going on so being 
expected to take dramatic, interesting pictures every day is a real challenge. And uh, I take my hat off to them, really, because they were able to produce the goods. They were able to fill the quota of pictures every day, text every day, interviews every day. Uh, it's a really tough job. And uh, I think it's full, full marks of full credit to them, really, that the content you get back is so good. You mentioned drones. They're here to stay. I mean, they've done an amazing job. As somebody that was droning before there were drones, what what do you think will be the next little innovative quirk that someone might come across that we all need to start adopting pretty quickly? That's a difficult question, really, because you know, back in my day, I'd never even imagined that a drone was possible. So. <laughs> You know, it, it's, I can't really answer that. But I, I, if you knew that, you know, you'd be the millionaire that, that I'm not. <laughs> if you could guess the next Apple gadget that's going to hit the hit streets that will change the world, I don't know. I think we're not really lacking for anything anymore. You can do pretty much everything that I could imagine that you would want to do with the technology and the drones are getting better all the time, the battery life's getting better. Um, you're able, well, I think you're able now to record on the remote control right, in high def rather than having to get the card back at all costs. So, you know, lo losing the drone doesn't become such a, a big issue when you, if you haven't got the material off the card camping. So what would I wish for? I don't know, really. It's something under the water, perhaps, something that, that could <laughs> sort of show um, the, the keel and things like that, the, the, the things like that. But uh, I think we're in a pretty good state now with, with the technology that we've got, with the, the means of capturing it. The cameras are fantastic. The means of sending it, the Inmarsat system works around the planet. Mm. and couple that with the drones I mean, what, what more could you ask for really I, um, I, I, I I'm, I'm going to pass on a thank you from everybody that's been watching the race um, that I'm sure is like me will now be, be thinking I wonder whether that photograph I wonder whether that image that I saw was a Rick Tomlinson photo and more often than not they are so thank you very much for all of those amazing images I will happily leave you well behind the lens and you can still hide. But um, hopefully uh, with just hearing you talk about those few little things, people will uh, realise some of the hard work that you've been putting into this uh, over the years. So thank you very much for taking the time today. Thanks now.